Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to take a second to thank all the people who support the show and help make it sustainable, both on Patreon and by signing up to Audible via the Dark Histories affiliate link. You can find links to both of those in the show notes if you're interested, or you can help out just by sharing the show with people who you think might be interested, on social media or with all the good people you might know. Alright, let's get on with the episode. Cheers. In 1980, a man walked into the marketplace of the Haitian town of Lestere. He approached a woman and greeted her warmly, introducing himself by his boyhood nickname. The man and woman were in fact family, but the woman simply stared back at him in shock. As word spread throughout the marketplace of the man's arrival, panic and commotion began to stir the humid Haitian air. The man's name was Clavius Narcisse, and he was well known in Lestere. To his dismay, he found that his warm greeting was not returned. This should not have really struck him as much of a surprise, as Clavius Narcisse had died and been buried in the Stair Cemetery 18 years prior. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 6. This is Dark Histories and I'm Ben. And this week we're going to be talking about zombies, which is a subject that, well, it makes me very excited. And when I read these books initially um, written by Wade Davis, I was just blew my mind that this stuff might actually exist. So let's just get straight into this. This is Zombies, a true story of Haitian voodoo. In 1982, Wade Davis, now Professor of Anthropology at the University of British Columbia, was studying for a PhD in ethnobotany at Harvard. He had travelled to far-flung reaches several times in support of his studies, and he had taken a particular interest in studying psychoactive plants used among the tribespeople of the Americas. In the spring of 1982, he received a call from Professor Richard Evans Schultz. His professor at Harvard and a man who had travelled extensively himself to many of the remotest places on earth in the search of obscure plant knowledge. He had once lived in the rainforest for eight years after taking a single semester leave. He had also been instrumental in fostering Davis's own exploratory urges when in 1974, while studying at Harvard, Schultz had advised Davis on his first expedition into the South American rainforests. This time, he had something for Davis that would prove to be a little stranger. They arranged a meeting, and when Davis arrived in Schultz's office, he asked Davis if he would be able to leave for the Caribbean country of Haiti within two weeks. Schultz set Davis up with Dr. Nathan Klein, a psychiatrist who had done exhaustive work in the field of psychopharmacology. Davis agreed to meet Klein, and two days later, in a Manhattan apartment, over drinks in thick crystal glasses, Klein handed Davis the death certificate dated the 2nd of March 1962 of one Clavius Narcisse. Clavius Narcisse lived in the village of Lestere, Haiti, where he was born in 1922. He had little responsibilities and had never settled to marry. He had, nevertheless, taken several women around Lestere, fathering children with multiple women while sidestepping all of the responsibilities, both financial and parental. 
He owned several small plots of land which he had inherited from his parents and that he farmed for a profit and he had made a secure living for himself. His sister told of how he had been able to afford a tin roof for his house before anyone else in the neighbourhood. Despite this, Narcisse had never been of much help to his family, preferring instead to keep his wealth to himself, which had led to several disputes with his brothers in the past, both over his land, which by Napoleonic code should have been divided amongst offspring after the parents' death, but which Clavius had kept to himself and his money. His wealth was, in no small part, afforded to him due to his lack of familial and parental responsibilities. And so the picture of Narcisse builds that he was a man of many enemies within the small market community of Lestaire. On the night of the 30th of April 1962, Clavius Narcisse, then 40 years old, admitted himself to the hospital in Deschapelles at 9.45pm. He was complaining of fevers, an aching body and he was spitting blood. Once in the hospital, his condition deteriorated rapidly. On the 2nd of May, he was pronounced dead by both a Haitian and American physician. Two of his sisters, Angelina and Mary Clarenasis, witnessed the body, after which he was held in cold storage for 20 hours and then buried in the cemetery on May the 3rd at 10am. 18 years later, he stumbled into Lestaire Marketplace and approached his sister Angelina. He used his boyhood nickname, that which only his family had known, and had not been used for decades. He claimed that one of his brothers had contracted a zombie ritual upon him in retaliation for one of the land disputes, and he claimed that he had been resurrected from his grave shortly after his death, beaten, bound, and taken away to work as a slave in the northern region of Haiti, with a group of other zombies. There he worked the land, emotionless and cold for two years, until the death of the master broke the spell. He stayed away from Lestaire for the next 16 years, in fear of his brother, but upon hearing of his death, he chose to return. Angelina was not the picture of joy he may have hoped for. She recoiled from Clavius, her eyes catching a scar on his cheek, from where 18 years prior, a misplaced nail had caught his skin as his coffin lid had been hammered shut. She offered him money and told him to leave, but he was a dead man walking, his life departed and his flesh pulled from the ground by Haitian voodoo. In 1789, Haiti was under colonial rule by the French Empire and named Saint-Domingue. It produced 40% of the sugar and 60% of the coffee that was consumed throughout all of Europe at the time. Known as the Pearl of the Antilles, it was one of the richest colonies in the world. Needless to say, it was built and supported on the back of black slavery, and it's estimated that the French brought in around 790,000 African slaves between the years of 1783 to 1791. This accounted for one third of the entire Atlantic slave trade. These people, torn from their homes, bought the traditions of their homeland with them, one of which, despite French efforts to force Catholicism upon the slaves, was the religion of African voodoo. It was, in fact, a voodoo ceremony that would eventually lead to a revolution in 1791, when the spirit Esli Dantor possessed a priestess and received a black pig as an offering. All those present pledged to fight for their freedom. In 1804, the slaves liberated themselves from French rule, 
fighting back Napoleon's armies to take Saint-Domingue and declaring independence. The island was renamed Haiti, however in 1835, voodoo became punishable by law, forcing it underground. As we have seen, however, traditions die hard, and secret voodoo societies would hold nighttime rituals in secret Houndfor, away from the eyes of the ruling elite priestesses thrashing wildly to rhythmical drums as they took in the spirits of the voodoo gods. They used voodoo to both protect and punish the people of the local communities, offering aid or cautioning sickness amongst the blood of animals and the heat of hot coals. One of the first mentions of zombies in Western writing is in a book written by William Seabrook and published in 1929 titled The Magic Island, The section pertaining to zombies is short, but the story he tells goes as such. In the spring of 1918, an American sugar factory in Port-au-Prince run by Hasco was having a busy season and it needed to hire extra workers for the harvest. Whole families would register at the Hasco fields and at the end of the week, each member would be paid for their work. One morning, a man named T. Joseph and his wife Croyance showed up at Hasco with a pack of workers, all walking and standing as if in days. The registrar apparently likened them to cattle with a vacant stare, but T. Joseph explained that they were ignorant people from the mountains, unable to speak the local language. At the end of the week, he would collect the wages of each member, naturally keeping it for himself. Each night, he and his wife would prepare meals for themselves and the workers, keeping the workers' food separate and taking care to make sure that no meat or seasoning be mixed into the workers' food. At weekends, a nearby market town held a fete and the husband and wife would take turns to attend whilst the other stayed with the workers. T. Joseph's wife, Croyance, however, felt sorry for the workers and wanted to see the procession for herself she decided one week to take them to the fate. She led the workers to the village and they sat staring vacantly under the shade of a tree as the parade walked past. A peddler selling tablet, a sugar-based cookie with peanuts, passed Croyance, who bought some of the sweets for herself and also for the zombies. She did not realise, however, that the peanuts in the cookies had been salted prior to baking and upon tasting the salt, the day's workers sprung up panicked by their situation. They marched ceaselessly back to their home village with Croyance unable to stop them. They turned into the cemetery and each found a gravesite that belonged to them. They climbed down into the pits of the freshly ripped up soil and died for a second time. For these workers were zombies under a voodoo spell of T. Joseph. The locals of the village proceeded to take revenge on T. Joseph and they promptly cut off his head. This story was told to William Seabrook by a Haitian man named Polonese. Seabrook didn't really believe it, indeed it sounds more like an urban legend than any truth, but Polonese swore blind that it was true, and further he promised Seabrook that he could show him a real life zombie. Polonese took Seabrook to see an old woman named Lamassie, whom he knew to have men work for her that she had risen from the grave. When Seabrook came face to face with the zombies, he found men with glazed looks in their eyes. He likened them to a dog he had once seen in a histological laboratory in Colombia, which had had its entire front brain removed. The men, as the dog in the lab, were alive but emotionless, staring blankly into nothing. 
Seabrook took one of the men's hands and greeted it, Bonjour compare. But Lamassi quickly intervened and told him to leave. Seabrook translated her words as, Negro's affairs are not for the whites. Seabrook felt that the men were probably mentally handicapped in some way, but Polonese continued to insist on his story of voodoo. Seabrook spoke about his experience with Dr. Antoine Villiers before he left Haiti. He told the men that he had seen and hypothesised about their handicaps as being a rational cause for their condition. Villiers agreed that this could be possible, but he was not so sure, telling Seabrook there may be more truth in Polynesia's stories than Seabrook would like to admit. He showed him Article 246 of the Haitian Criminal Code. It should also be qualified as attempted murder the employment of which may be made against any person of substance which, without causing actual death, produces a lethargic coma more or less prolonged. If, after the person has been buried, the act shall be considered murder no matter what result follows. The implication to Seabrook was a simple one. What he had seen was common enough to require it to become a legally recognised criminal practice. This had a profound effect on Seabrook, for this was Haiti, where they practiced voodoo, and these were the walking dead. Davis had spent time before travelling to Haiti hypothesising on a rational explanation for the apparent zombification of Clavius Narcisse. He had concluded that an African plant, Datura stramonium, could have been used as the basis of a poison and could have been introduced to Haiti along with the African traditions. Datura stramonium could be used in a concoction that, when rubbed on the skin, would have a variety of effects, including hallucinations, delusions, confusion, disorientation and amnesia. In large doses, it could fell a human into a numb stupor or even result in death. When Davis arrived in Haiti, he first met with Max Beauvoir. Beauvoir was a renowned authority on Haitian voodoo, and he warned Davis that he would be looking for the zombie poison for some time, as it was not a poison which made a zombie, but a bokor, a voodoo priest. He invited him to witness one of his commercial voodoo ceremonies later that night. Davis obliged and duly spent the night enthralled as he watched a mambo, a voodoo priestess, trace out symbols on the ground to invoke spirits amongst prayer and drums. An initiate of the temple, a houndsy, thrashed about dancing wildly until the spirit arrived, possessing her, whereby she began to careen around the floor of the temple. She chewed glass, sacrificed a dove by breaking its wings, and then she bit its throat out. She then lay on a fire and danced while holding a red-hot coal in her mouth. When the drums stopped, the spirits left and Davis had been given a vivid introduction to voodoo. Davis next met with Clavius Narcisse. Narcisse vividly told Davis of the experience of death, of lying in hospital, aware of his family next to him whilst he was presumed dead. He told of being buried and of how a nail hammered into the lid of the coffin pierced his cheek. And he spoke of being called out of the ground by a voodoo priest, beaten, bound and taken away to work as a slave. He was conscious the entire time, but not living. He assured Davis that, throughout the ordeal, he was very much a dead man. Narcisse knew what he had become, but was powerless to stop it. The Bacor had my soul, he said. 
Davis spent the next day exploring Haiti and trying to find any trace of the tourist Ramonium. He found none. Davis's next stop was to meet with Marcel Pierre, a voodoo priest whom he was assured could create a zombie. He asked Pierre to create him a poison to turn a man into a zombie and after some haggling, Pierre agreed. Davis watched as Pierre ground various plants in the mortar. He grated a human skull and added the shavings and finally added several sachets of coloured talc. He placed the green powder into a small glass bottle and Davis left, convinced that the powder in the bottle was worthless. He had not noticed any of the ingredients to contain anything that could have psychoactive nor physiological effects. He returned after 10 days and he confronted Pierre. He told him that his backers in America could pay him thousands upon thousands of dollars if the poison were real, for they were interested in its possible pharmaceutical uses. And after a bit of bravado between the men, Marcel Pierre finally capitulated and agreed to make a zombie poison this time for real. Davis joined Pierre in collecting several of the ingredients. This time the ingredients were far more gruesome, but to Davis they were far more promising and included digging the body of a three-year-old child from her grave. They worked by night and after they had rubbed an oily substance on their skin, Pierre crushed the head of the decaying corpse open with his hands and added it to a mortar already containing plants and the carcasses of a toad and large sea worm. The toad and the sea worm had previously been placed inside a jar and buried in the ground until the creatures had died from rage. Several fish that had been placed on a grill to burn were added and the whole thing was crushed into a powder, poured into glass jars, placed into the coffin with the corpse of the child and buried in the ground of Marcel Pierre's temple for three days. Davis had his poison. Before his return to America, and quite coincidentally whilst out walking, Davis stumbled upon a field of plants that he recognised. It was an entire field of Daturus germonium. After Davis returned to Harvard, he immediately sent his poison to the laboratory, along with specimens of the ingredients for toxicological analysis. His results were fascinating. He found that the plants all had physiological effects, leading to rashes, sores and skin irritations. The toad contained a multitude of poisons, but importantly, all symptoms matched with the symptoms Clavius Narcisse showed before his death. The sea worm made logical sense, as the toad would secrete more of its toxins if it felt threatened, so by placing the creatures together in a jar and burying them, they were not simply dying of rage, but the toad was being coerced into creating a hazardous amount of toxin before its death simply by the presence of the worm in the jar. The real breakthrough came with the fish. The species used in the poison was blowfish or puffer. The poison of the blowfish, tetrodotoxin, is one of the most poisonous toxins known. Its effects include reduction of temperature, a prickling sensation leading to numbness, often giving the feeling of floating, paralysis, glassy eyes, eventually leading to a comatose state. However, full consciousness is retained until either the victim of the poison dies or recovers, depending on the dosage. This, Davis hypothesized, would not only explain why, when upon speaking with Narcisse, he could remember everything about his death and his feeling of floating above the ground, but it could also perfectly explain how he could have, for all intents and purposes, 
appeared dead to the physicians in the hospital. He researched more into the puffer's poison and found several cases in history, especially in Japan, where it's often eaten as a delicacy, of people dying only to miraculously return to life on their way to the morgue. The plants were used as an irritant, a way in which to create a sore, an open wound which would allow the toxins to breach the bloodstream. It all fell into place so neatly. So what of the detura from his initial hypothesis? Although not in the main poison, Davis recalled his conversations with Narcisse and noted that upon being taken from his grave, he was immediately beaten and bound by his voodoo grave robbers. Davis believes that detura is used after the zombie poison, whilst the victim's psychological state is still frail, as a way to create a constant state of disorientation, effectively zombifying a victim for as long as the poison was used, maintaining a constant psychological stupor. This would also explain why, after the death of Narcissus' master, the zombies had been able to break free of their slavery, as the effect of the drug no longer being administered wore off. But whilst all of this fieldwork provided a material basis for understanding zombification, voodoo has its own rules. Now that Davis had a grasp on the practicalities of zombification, he is driven to understand the meaning and through his search discovered that Bazango, secret voodoo societies that trace a lineage of rites and rituals descending from the hidden groups of escaped slaves during colonial French rule. These groups of men and women, enacting out their cultural traditions in the mountains, would eventually form a militia that played a forefront role in the fighting of the rebellion. Now these traditions survived as secret religious sects, meeting in shadowy temples during the black of night, submitting offerings into coffins lit by firelight as drums rattle and priests sing. The Bazango both protect their communities and enact measures of judgement. As Davis was told directly during his time on Haiti, the Bazango can be sweet as honey and bitter as bile. Clavius Narcisse himself told Davis vaguely of a tribunal and judgement prior to his death and of being pulled from his grave. Zombification is then something of a form of capital punishment from the Bazango. Narcisse knew that he had wronged the community and he understood his punishment in the context of voodoo. He accepted his fate as a zombie, and as voodoo dictates, he had become the walking dead. Voodoo, zombies, serious real-life zombies, ladies and gentlemen. Bonkers, right? Absolutely bananas. It's a really fascinating subject, which I think is really hard to convey. I think a lot of people might skip this episode because they see, you know, zombies and Haitian voodoo and they kind of possibly think like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, right, whatever. But when you sort of put it you like that, you realise that, you know, there's scientific reasoning behind all of this stuff. And it's absolutely mad. The fact that, you know, zombies, obviously not zombies as we know them in fiction, but but a type of sort of zombie that has created the fiction or inspired the fiction at least, really exists, is absolutely terrifying. Can you imagine being buried alive, but being completely conscious whilst it's happening? It's frightening. And it's certainly, you know, the way they talk of it as a form of punishment. It's certainly a punishment, isn't it? It would be, oh, just terrifying. 
I suppose it's a good way of imprisoning someone without the need of an actual prison. You know, you're just sort of imprisoning them in their mind, I suppose, using drugs. It's absolutely bonkers. But it's a fascinating story. And Wade Davis, the guy that wrote, he's written a couple of books about it. He's written two, one of which is a lot more academic than the other. So there's two books. There's, there's one book called The Serpent and the Rainbow. And that's more relaxed and sort of aimed at just everyone who wants to read a fascinating story. And it's a really good book. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, and then he's written a second one called uh, Through the Passage of Darkness, I believe it's called, or it might just be called The Passage of Darkness. But that's obviously by Wade Davis as well. You'll find it if you search Passage of Darkness, Wade Davis. And that's a more academic book. It's a bit more um, full on. So it depends on what kind of part of the story you want to read. If you want to read just a, an easygoing book that's really compelling, then go for serpent and the rainbow um and if you kind of want to delve into the science behind it the passage of darkness is is much more say more academic and and it's a bit more kind of heavy but it's equally as fascinating um it's a lot more expensive though so passage you know uh, serpent and the rainbow is probably most people's best bet to start with but they're both excellent books and really fascinating and they dispel some of the myths of things like voodoo and a, a big part of Wade Davis's writing actually is dispelling the kind of myths behind voodoo which I really appreciate um, because you know you, you, I didn't know anything about voodoo and you go into it possibly with all these crazy kind of prejudgments um, and you've kind of got an idea of what you think voodoo might be in your mind already Hey, my idea of voodoo before I started this was pretty much Monkey Island 2. If no one knows what I'm talking about, it's an old PC game or Atari game or Amiga game. It's an old game, point-and-click adventure. Yeah, the pirate king brought back from life. Anyway, that's going way off topic. But that was more or less, you know, my idea of voodoo. And my idea of zombies was Night of the Living Dead or, or Day of the Dead or all these kind of old B-movie exploitation zombie films. Like 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 most, I guess. So it's fascinating to find the truth behind that, and I say so I really appreciate Wade Davis's sort of angle, where he's kind of trying to demystify it and show that actually this is something that could happen, and it is something that is happening all the time. One thing you find when you read either book, you'll know that it's really closed off, and it took Wade Davis an awful long time to learn anything about anything on Haiti because everything was very much, there's a side that is presented to tourists and a side that's presented to the real community and they're very different. And it took him a long time to kind of build that trust and those connections to kind of get under the skin of it, I guess. To the point where I would say he's he's more or less this is, you know it's his second home now, and he is sort of he can sort of avoid those traps, the sort of tourist traps, and he he won't be sort of treated like a tourist. He he won't allow people to take him for a ride, for example. But it took him a really long time to get to that point, 
and it goes to show like how there's there's a there's a documentary on this same thing by Vice, and it really when you read the Wade Davis books, it goes to show how naive I guess. Although I actually quite like the Vice documentary, I don't, you know, for a Vice documentary, I thought it was quite good, but. It, it does show how naive they were being, thinking that they were going to come out of that with anything useful. I mean, they probably didn't. It was a Vice documentary. They're there just for the extreme angles, weren't they? But it, it shows how they were never going to find anything out legitimate because, as I say, it took Davis absolutely years to even begin to kind of get under the surface and sort of start to see the real side of voodoo. And then, yeah, I really appreciate the way he writes about it to sort of demystify it and, and make it seem less kind of crazy and voodoo and zombies and and make it more like of a serious subject. But either way, it's fascinating and it's absolutely insane. So I really recommend those two books if you want to know more about it. So yeah, that's that. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, go to darkhistories.com. You'll find all the links there for you know, subscriptions and being able to find us on social media, contact me at emails, um, anything you want. You can also find support at patreon.com. But you'll find all of that, links to all that stuff at darkcrushies.com. So if you'd like to do any of that stuff, that would be amazing. If you'd like to ask me any questions or, you know, just send me an email, why not? I read every email I get and I do my best to respond to them as quickly as possible. I respond to them mostly whilst I'm on my lunch break at work. So apologies if I don't get back to you straight away. Um, say mostly I sort of save it up and like two, once or twice a week I'll go through my emails whilst I'm at work and sitting on my lunch break and I'll just reply to as many as I can. But yeah, I, I enjoy the interaction. So if you want to get in touch with me about anything, tell me I'm wrong, tell me I'm right, tell me I'm interested, tell me this whole podcast is nonsense, whatever you like. I've had the gamut, you know, I've had people tell me I'm offensive and I've also had people tell me I'm incredibly sensitive to the subject matter. So, you know, bring it on. Let me know. You uh, Feel free to get in touch. So, yeah, that's pretty much that for this week. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much for listening. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate, you know, you giving the time to listen to the podcast so thanks very much and sleep tight